0: Welcome to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. My name is Chuck Andaris. Today, we're discussing the impact of the coronavirus on organic row crops. We have three parts for you today. First, a conversation between organic farmer and Moses Organic Specialist Carmen Fernholtz and his mentee, Luke Peterson, who is going to take over the farm as Carmen retires then a discussion of organic commodity markets with economist Ryan Corey from Mercaris. We'll wrap up back with Carmen to hear his reaction to Ryan's view of the markets and to hear why farmers should keep thinking long term despite the uncertain future. Now to Luke and Carmen.
1: I'm Carmen Fernholz, an organic farmer near Madison, Minnesota. Madison is about three hours straight west of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and have been doing organic crop farming since about
2: 1972. I'm Luke Peterson. I've been farming since 2012 and organically since 2014 from Madison, Minnesota. I have a wife and three kids, Esther, Orville, and Oaken.
1: Well, Luke, let's let's talk a little bit this morning. I know the other day we talked a little bit about uh, a few issues. Uh, I guess, like I was asking the other day, what do you see as uh, some of the short-term safety nets that you may have put in place during
2: this uh, virus outbreak? Well, at first, when I read the question, I kind of got a little nervous and thought, well, I don't have any far as short-term safety nets, but then the more I thought about it, I was thinking in terms of, you know, we don't have any savings in our account or anything anything like that. You know, we still have our mortgage to pay and bills coming in and stuff like that. So I was thinking along those terms. But then the more I thought about it, we do have safety nets such as um, my wife's steady income. She works in town as a nurse practitioner. And Through her job, we do have health insurance. So
0: I think we're in a really
2: good spot as far as that goes. Um, Just in case one of us were to get sick, we would have the health insurance to pay for it. And uh, another safety net we have is our daycare. With Allie being really busy right now and spring work just getting started and trying to get equipment ready, without daycare, it would be impossible, I think. I think that's kind of what we have for our safety nets would be my wife's income, health care, and daycare.
1: Yeah, you know, and and that's not a whole lot different from what I went through in the uh, mid '80s when we had this significant downturn of uh, farm economy, and uh, we we were seeing devastating prices and interest rates rising, and we were really uh, fortunate at that time as well because. My wife was working off the farm and could supply the insurance that we definitely needed because at that time we had four children in high school or younger. And so, yes, we were lucky we had that safety net and it it really made a difference. And we had daycare as well. It was certainly a little different than what you have today, but we had those two safety nets. And a third one that I had during that time was that I had already had some pretty good experience in doing organic farming so my purchase inputs were significantly less than than some of the neighboring uh, conventional farmers who were quite dependent on purchased inputs of fertilizers and herbicides so it's amazing that the things of in the 80s parallel very much today one thing i I forgot to mention, you know, and I think you appreciate this as well as a, as a safety net that we do have even in, as an organic farmer, is that we have good uh, crop insurance, very comparable to the conventional growers, plus our insurance does cover us for the uh, the organic prices. And so that obviously is a, is a good safety net. And I think the other thing that I would look at from my perspective, and you can respond to this as well, Luke, with myself as sort of moving into retirement, but at the same time uh, wanting to continue the farm as an organic operation, to me, one of the biggest safety nets is having you involved in the operation, because uh, I'm obviously at the age that I can't do what I uh, did 20, 30 years ago, but at least can be around uh, with some help and assistance, and so uh, I look at you being part of this operation as a tremendous safety net for me.
2: Well, that's something I should have said earlier. I look at you the same way as a safety net—someone to be around to help out if I need it.
1: Do you see any long-term impacts on your farming operation with this uh, current uh, epidemic that we're going through,
2: Luke? Long-term, I hope the economy kind of holds up, just because. I hope people will have the money that they need to buy quality food. And even some of the food that we do grow can be an experience that customers will pay for. Like right now, as an example of that experience, we work with a baker in Minneapolis. And his name is Steve Horton. He owns Baker's Field Flour and Bread. And that's located inside the food building in northeast Minneapolis. And what it is, is it's a old warehouse that they converted into a restaurant, and then they have three makers in the building. One is a cheese maker, one is a bread maker, and one is a locker plant where they turn hogs into bacon. It's an experience because you can walk through this building and watch them each make their own product. It's all windows, and, and then all that product gets distributed throughout Minneapolis to the food co-ops and to other bakeries and to a lot of the restaurants. So long-term, if people have the money that they'll need to keep buying good quality food is one thing that kind of concerns me. With Steve, he's kind of new at it. He's been at it for four years now, and he's been trying to build the business. I've been working with him since he started, and we've been working on which varieties to grow, how much of each variety, which variety has the best baking characteristics, and things like that nature. So we do have a lot invested. Everybody involved kind of has... A lot invested. But at the same time, I hope this maybe gets people thinking more about where their food comes from. And a business like that will be kind of sought after more than it was before this, maybe. It's going to have some long term impacts. You know, a thought that I had,
1: and you can elaborate on this a little bit as well, Luke. I'm wondering, at least, and I'm hoping that people's food buying habits might change as a result of this epidemic, because right now they're forced to do a lot more home cooking, and maybe they will begin to re-experience what it is to uh, cook and bake at home and also be sitting around the table eating together. And I'm hoping that they start realizing the difference between the highly processed foods in the restaurants, etc., and find out that there is a, a real art and a real benefit to home cooking and the uh, choices of ingredients is that they use. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, I hope you're right. You know, if you take, like, Steve's product, right now, since the restaurant's closed down, he's lost a lot of orders coming through. And on the back side of that, there's been a few Internet orders coming in, and hopefully that would pick up more, too, um, and people could get used to buying directly from people like Steve or or even from us offline. Maybe that'll ramp up that side of the business. So even though he's had to let employees go and he's losing some of his business on one side, maybe that'll kind of change his business model a little bit and it might turn into more people buying things online from him. Absolutely.
1: That's sort of my uh, hope and desire as well, because we always know these kinds of societal impacts have long-term uh, long-term changes, and so I'm optimistic that something will be going in the right
2: direction. I follow a lot of people that follow him in Minneapolis kind of on social media, and there's a lot of posts out there about how there's no flour in the, gro- in the grocery stores or in certain grocery stores, and how the only place they were able to find it was from Steve at Bakersfield. I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Have you taken any what I'd call uh, emergency uh, measures, Even as this uh, pandemic seems to get more challenging every day, uh, anything that you have done or are thinking about that you would call emergency measures?
2: I I really haven't, and it kind of makes me a little bit nervous. I'm kind of wondering what I should be doing different. But at the same time, our farm kind of is set up to be self-sustaining in a sense, more so than other farms maybe. We don't rely on any chemicals or like you said earlier with the Bought in fertilizers uptown. We do buy fertilizer from our neighbors. So right now, I'm really not doing anything different. I had my seed prepaid. It's all in the shed, ready to be put in the ground. And with my markets in Minneapolis, you know, it's possible that I'll plant seed that I really don't have a market for. But at the same time, I would never not plant it because if there ever were a time for this type of business model, I think now would be the time to do it. And it's always a good time to do things better or to to do the right thing. So I think we'll just put the seed in the ground and we'll hope for the best.
1: (laughs) Not a whole lot different than we've done for years, absolutely. You know, the farmer has to be that optimist that goes out there and plants and hopes that something good becomes of it. That was one of the things that sort of kept me going over the years as well is uh, certainly I like to try different crops. But I always kept in mind uh, to plant at least a significant portion of the crops that could be marketed in various ways. And in this case, if the specialty market failed, I could still haul the corn, worst case scenario, to the local elevator or whatever, at least generate some income there. But uh, yeah, I, I felt the same way. The safety nets were sort of built in ahead of when I really needed them. And I think that's what I hear you saying as well.
2: Yeah. And then some days you kind of I can think too hard about it and get kind of worried about it, but at the same time, people are always going to want good food to eat. So. Yes.
1: That's exactly right. Exactly right. So are there any changes? I know you've made some changes earlier, but are there any changes uh, on the immediate horizon that you might be considering? not only with the virus that's going on, but even in your whole operation looking on into
2: the future? We've kind of intentionally been slowly trying to work our way into livestock. And like we've been talking about with our local markets, that's been all intentional so that we, uh, you know, if something like this were to happen or it is happening, we don't rely so much on the outside world for our food and then the inputs that it takes to make that food. And another changes we've made is I'm building a website to try to connect with people and have a storefront online. So just in terms of just basically still just trying to keep it local and trying to build relationships with people and not not relying on you know outside markets or things that we can't control.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I know uh, we had talked about the livestock when we were going to put them into the system. And one of the first things we sort of accepted was the fact that the livestock The major purpose that we were thinking about putting them in there for was to provide a much more robust cropping and rotation opportunity as well as a source of fertility, which hopefully makes the operation even more self-sufficient. And so I I sort of plug that in there as well as, as the other uh, changes that we've been thinking about. And when you come into situations like we're coming into now, they really seem to be the right decisions being made ahead of when they really need it to be made.
2: Yeah, yeah, and livestock will give us that flexibility, and we can always feed them our mistakes, so.
1: Absolutely, and I guess the other question then is looking at uh, the challenges of uh, health and health issues, are there any things that you've uh, had to put on hold that you were wanting to do, and right now you're saying, I can't quite do it at this point?
2: There's one thing, I guess, the main thing is I was in kind of the process of building a seed cleaning facility, and I guess the idea behind it is to kind of meet some of the demand for smaller batches of organic grain locally. It's difficult to get, you know, a lot of different varieties in small quantities cleaned for various reasons, I guess. Most cleaning facilities want to clean a truckload at a time. And with all these startup bakers and breweries and distilleries, some of them like to have a tote at a time um, or even, you know, 100 bushels at a time, which isn't enough to even start up these bigger cleaning facilities. So I was I was in the process of building cleaning facilities right now, just rounding up the equipment and trying to support that side of this local market that's kind of growing. And I think for now, I'm just going to hold off on that. Um, I have purchased a cleaner and a color sorter, and I do have pretty good investment already already made and put into that. I'll just keep the equipment and let it sit there and kind of see how this thing blows over and then go from there. But I think for now I better just step back and hold off on that idea for a little while.
1: Have you given any thought then to uh, changing your crop rotation plans or anything along
2: those lines? I haven't. I I don't plan on changing... Any rotations. If anything, this is just kind of driving me further forward with introducing livestock and more perennials and becoming more self-sustaining, I guess. And then gonna just be hopeful that markets in Minneapolis hold up with my small grains. But not really. I'm, I'm kind of just, I don't know. You, you spend so much time and effort planning these things and even years actually planning these things. It's pretty difficult to want to change your plans.
1: You make a lot of sense uh, because I think back over over my years as well, and a lot of people have always asked me, so what is your rotation? And I, I've told them this for 25 to 30 years. It's corn, soybeans, small grains, alfalfa. And if you look at that rotation, it has significant flexibility in it, but it also has, to me, significant uh, security because all of those crops are either going to be very easily marketable or building soil fertility. And and when we look at where we can cut corners and need to cut corners in in this challenging time, especially what could be some economic challenges in the near future, uh, having that basic crop rotation and being dependent upon more than just one or two crops as your major income, I think gives us all that safety net that we're looking for. Plus, I just think uh, it, it gives you much more reason not to even... Look at uh, changing rotations from something that has been as successful as it has been for us. I would say, wouldn't
2: you agree, Lou? I agree. Yeah, I I just feel very strongly about it. That you know, if the markets drop or go down, you know, that's just not a reason why we should change up our rotations or or focus more on the you know profitable crops that are profitable immediately. I mean, and just focus on how to build more of a resilient system, I think, is more important right now, especially And not to downplay this virus or anything, but if you look at the impacts that climate change could have on, you know, a farming operation in the future, and if a guy doesn't build resistance towards pandemics or catastrophes like that, I just don't think we'll have a chance in the future. I mean, it's not here yet, but this virus kind of shows us that once it's here, then, then it's a little different story, and we kind of... And kind I of wish we would have prepared or done things different in the past. You know, like you say, we want to be building
1: our resilience ahead of when we need it. And I think uh, when we look at the pandemic, it's the reality that we knew was out there. And I think, given a lot of what we've done over the years, I think we've gotten ourselves into a fairly good position because our opportunities for generating in- income are not based on two crops. They're based on a whole system across the farm. And I think that's
2: what gives us the resilience that we need. And this, I mean, started 40 years ago. <laughs> in, a, in a sense, you know, right. where, where the farm is at now, when you started to have the resilience that it does have, and then just the time that it took for learn rotations and, you know, the methods that you use for weed control and that sort of thing. And then if you look at when we talk about what it's gonna take to prepare before something happens, if you look at the infrastructure that we've lost in our local communities that used to be here that actually supported the communities are non existent basically. So Correct. even I mean, we have a long ways to go before we're ever going to be self-reliant or not dependent on the rest of the world for the basic needs that we need in health in our community. Anything else? Maybe something else to touch on would maybe be one of, one of my worries is that you know, with my wife being in healthcare, she's been crazy busy and trying to prepare for this thing, and hopefully it doesn't get out of hand where, to the point where she's not able to come home or because she's so busy and then we get busy in the fields. Or if she were to get sick, she'd have to quarantine while I was busy in the fields. And then I think the kids would also. So they're looking, if you look at the peak times of when this could peak, it's kind of right when busy season starts and in organic. You really don't have a choice. You have to be out in the field from spring till August to make things happen. And uh, that's that is one of my worries is that if this thing gets really rolling and we don't take precautionary measures to make sure that it doesn't, With her being in healthcare and me being an organic farmer, time could get to be an issue.
0: I have one more question for you. So I'm glad you guys brought up climate change because both climate change and this pandemic are very obviously problems that you can't be resilient to as an individual. Like you have to build resilient systems to be able to to weather it as a community because you can do everything that you want to stay healthy but if everyone around you isn't there's not much you can do about that and it's kind of the same with climate change you know it needs to be more than just individual farmers doing practices that build soil organic matter like it's got to be this whole system because you know one farmer building soil organic matter while the climate changes around them won't necessarily be able to buffer them against like An 8-inch rain event or something. So from all that, what are the big community-based solutions or cooperative solutions that you have in mind for building resilience against these kinds of big shocks?
2: The only thing that comes to mind is, you know, for different reasons, if the markets stay low or go down, kind of only makes the problem worse as far as how big farms get and how they become more simplistic as they get bigger. This conversation could lead into kind of a marketing problem that we have as far as getting the price for our grain that we need to be able to do these sustainable practices. If the market isn't there, how are farmers going to pay for these sustainable practices? Like I always say, no margin, no mission. Right. And And that's the bottom
1: line. And I think something that can help that mission is policy on the national level. That Strives more to level the playing field rather than uh, skew the playing field towards the larger operations and towards the more monocropping systems.
2: And it has to come from that level. It's right where we're at right now. It's too big to, to kind of change, and there's too much wealth, and
0: you know, in a small amount of hands. Thanks again to Luke and Carmen. Now to Ryan Corey, the head of economics at Mercaris. Macaris provides data, analysis, and online trading for organic and non-GMO crops. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ryan Corey, and I'm the Director of Economics here at Macaris. So for farmers dealing with coronavirus, what does the market look like as we roll into planting?
3: Yeah, so... Whenever you start thinking about this marketing year and planting and what maybe we're going to look at when we get to harvest, the context is what happened last fall, right? So with last fall and last few year's planting, we saw a lot of challenges and we expected to see some reductions in production. However, some of those reductions didn't manifest in the way that we expected because we had some significant growth in the number of operations in the organic So overall, supplies actually turned out better than we were expecting last year. And that's created a very bearish tone as we began this 1920 market year. And that that tone has persisted into this spring. So kind of the context that we're looking at right now is prices are a little bit softer than we would have expected them to be. And with the continued growth in the industry, we're looking at more production coming on this year, which kind of creates the outlook for weaker prices as we come towards this harvest. So the things that we're looking at right now are what kind of crops can we move into our rotation that might generate the better returns and looking at forward marketing
0: opportunities in case we do see a more bearish path going forward. Okay, what are the risks that farmers face because of the coronavirus and how might that impact their plans moving forward?
3: You know, in the short term, the, the biggest risks for coronavirus, I think, are on the individual operator level. And that being, you know, as a farm manager or a farm operator, if, if you get sick or if somebody you rely on for your customer falls ill, trying to find gaps to fill in that labor pool, that seems to be the largest risk right now. Uh, outside of that, I think it is on kind of a more micro level in terms of being able to purchase inputs or being able to get on-farm labor those things that you need as you think about putting crops in the ground and getting access to those. From a, from a larger market impact perspective, there's not much yet in terms of uh, drivers for price or things of that nature, but it really is making sure that you have a path to labor if something should go wrong or somebody should fall sick so that you can make sure you
0: get planting performed on time and in the way that you want. What might the coronavirus do to the demand in the organic livestock sector?
3: Yeah, so this one actually gets a little more nuanced as we move into the spring and into the summer of this year. There's there's really two different directions that this can impact the organic livestock sector, which is really crucial because that is the largest driver of feed demand or the largest driver of demand within the organic sector in the U.S. You know, from from a very uh, market Or a consumer-based perspective, you know, we see a lot of panic buying at the moment and a lot of people running out to buy up supplies. And that can cause some issues in terms of uh, meeting supply chain needs and, and supplies backing up in cold storage if this behavior leads to a lack of demand down the road. So we could see some lumpiness in the actual demand for commodities themselves over the next couple of months just because we are seeing unusual buying behavior right now from the consumer. You know, looking... More acutely, though, at the livestock industry itself, we we could see issues in terms of labor supply. Uh, We've seen announcements of the the border being closed with respect to both Canada and Mexico, and particularly Mexico, trying to find labor to operate slaughter facilities. Uh, And and then, you know, if you think within a facility, these were, were in a context where we're trying to practice this social distancing And that's not really something that works very well in a slaughterhouse concept because you do have a lot of bodies moving quickly within relatively close proximity. Now, a lot of those bodies tend to be pretty well covered up because the slaughter industry requires a pretty high level of sanitation. to But you could see a situation in which a community or a few communities that are the key labor pool for these slaughter facilities where a number of people fall sick and you could see slaughter capacity shut down as a result. So, you know, the the big risk could be a, you know, some disjointedness or some some lumpiness to the logistics within the demand side and the transportation side on the consumer perspective of, you know, meat and eggs and dairy. But then from the labor pool that we actually use to process these goods and and get them to final destinations, we we could see this cut into the demand side for grain just from that perspective as well. So there are definitely some... Bearish risk with respect to demand and prices, if, if you consider those factors.
0: Yeah, and in in other parts of the ag industry where they use a lot of H two A workers, I know that usually they're kind of put into housing with you know ten or more people in it, so they don't really have the infrastructure to um, host guest workers, even if they can come in a in a way that's safe.
3: Even you know, within those contexts, uh, access to the acute health care that you may, might need or the ability to quarantine individuals that you might need should you have instances of the
0: coronavirus show up, they are, they're less accessible. And so, you know, that definitely heightens the risk from that perspective. What are the potential impacts on imports? If,
3: if we do see a worst case scenario, if we see the livestock demand side slow down, um, that, that would be a dampening impact on imports. and. That wouldn't necessarily be beneficial to the U.S. organic commodity market because we're losing imports because we're losing demand. The other thing that we may see go on with imports, depending on the impact on the U.S. economy, if if we see this go on for uh, an extended period of time and it really starts to impact the U.S. economy and starts to impact U.S. demand, and we start to see the value of the U.S. dollar fall, Lower U.S. dollars tend to lead to higher U.S. commodity prices because it basically makes it harder or more expensive to import commodities and makes sure it's cheaper to export. So, you know, one minor silver lining of uh, recession or slowdown in the U.S. economy could be it, it could lead to higher commodity prices in the U.S. relative to import markets, which we're very dependent on. And that could add a slight boost to organic commodity prices in the U.S., That said, that would be in the context of weaker demand in the United States, which would probably more than offset that. But, you know, I I see scenarios both directions in which this could lead to a reduction in imports, both due to the macroeconomic factors and, and due to the
0: fact that we could face lower livestock demand as a result of this. What are the risks for consumer demand if this issue persists or if it becomes worse?
3: Well, you know, organic industry is... In a lot of ways, it's similar to the conventional in the sense that you have a lot of inputs that go into producing livestock goods. and Livestock goods are a major factor within the demand. And so if you see a weaker economy, you'll see a, a reduction in demand for you know, more expensive meat cuts and things of like that. However, organic is a little bit different. Because it, it is genuinely a luxury good. It's a value-add good. It's a good that comes at a premium price to most of your conventional products in the grocery store. And as a result, it's definitely more sensitive to uh, changes in income. You know, if you go back and you look at the last major recession that we had uh, where we had a substantial impact on consumer incomes, We we saw organic premiums plummet and and they briefly dropped to below the conventional prices. And that's that heightened demand elasticity there to income. So, really, at this moment, and, and that would take a pretty substantial impact, to be completely honest, to really cause that kind of a negative reaction. But that is something to also be aware of. If we do see a situation in which the U.S. economy does slow down substantially, the Demand for organic commodities in the past has responded more sharply to that slowdown in incomes. And we could see that happen again. So, in some ways, we're more exposed to economic fluctuations in the conventional sector because of our
0: price premium. How could all this play out in terms of commodity prices in the fall? So, that really depends on a whole bunch of different factors and a bunch of different moving parts.
3: You know, before the, this coronavirus issue, came to light and started to have impacts and risks, we were looking at a more bearish outlook for the U.S. organic sector. Coming off this past marketing year, as I mentioned, we've had an increase in organic production. And offsetting that, we've actually seen demand for organic livestock commodities slow down a little bit, and organic livestock production expansion slowing. And so you have two counteracting factors there, slowing demand growth, but escalating production. And that was to a more bearish outlook before this began. As we look into this fall, you know, if we get past planting and we don't have any major issues or delays with planting and that goes off smoothly, the coronavirus most likely will have a more bearish outlook for commodity prices in the U.S. As I mentioned, we could see imports slow down as a result of this, primarily due again to those, those Larger economic factors and potentially a slowdown in livestock demand. But both of those would also result in a weaker price outlook for organic commodities within the U.S. as well. So uh, unfortunately, the the prognosis is, you know, we were already looking at a bearish outlook for prices. And uh, this potentially just adds a little more steam to that bearish outlook. How much more steam? That would really be dependent on just how far... Reaching the impacts of this uh, current issue are, but uh, overall, you know, we're 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 probably not looking at something that's going to be beneficial
0: to the U.S. organic industry through the remainder of this year and into the twenty twenty one marketing year. Do you think that that the global supply chains will be disrupted? Like, can we expect to have the same amount of grain coming from overseas as before? Now, if we look at what impact the coronavirus may
3: have on supply chains globally and what that may mean for the U.S. organic sector, you're really talking about how those may impact imports. And frankly, we may be seeing the first signs of this with Argentina recently discussing shutting down, uh, crushing facilities and commodity exports to essentially you know, slow mobility within the country and, and to reduce contact and the spread of corona within Argentina. And that's pretty substantial because Argentina has become one of our larger suppliers of both organic corn and soybeans. And periodically in the past, they've support, uh, supplied us with beef-grade wheat as well. In the near term, even if Argentina does shut down its ports, it's not going to be hugely impactful. Generally, we import more from Argentina in the earlier part of the marketing year as opposed to the latter part. So if we do see it shut down, say, for the next three or four months, it won't be hugely impactful because of the generally slower periods. But if we look beyond Argentina, another major source of soybean imports, organic soybean imports is India. And a lot of the press coming out of India recently indicates that they may not be working quite as proactively to slow the spread of coronavirus within that country. And so if we do see large impacts in India, then that could definitely translate into reduced exports from that country. And that could actually substantially impact U.S. organic commodity landscape. The the major commodity we import from India at the moment is organic soybean meal, and they account for about 80 to 90 percent of our organic soybean meal imports. So with soybean meal imports making up a significant part of our overall import portfolio, if India does have major issues and you see a substantial reduction or impact in supplies from that country, that could substantially impact the supply of soybeans in the United States and and that could have ripple on effects Uh, at this moment in terms of what it'll mean for the organic industry, you know, particularly the organic field crop industry, grains and oilseeds. It's too early to talk about anything other than speculation. Like I said, other than Argentina, we haven't really seen much in terms of proactive or reactive steps to the coronavirus with respect to trade, but with so much of our supply chain being reliant on imports if we do see countries significantly retract their economic activity or their exports as a result, then yeah, we could quickly
0: see impacts within the U.S. market. Do you think there'll be a lot of pressure on conventional farmers to transition to organic more than normal for the premiums or for the outlook for the market? You know, over this year, it's hard to say exactly
3: what will happen with, with that in mind. Whenever you're talking about that, you're really talking about a bundle of personal factor, really, when it comes to a conventional farmer. The way I kind of look at it, there's a basket of different rationales that I hear people use to justify, or maybe justify is not fair, but to explain why they've chosen to convert to organic. You have people who do it because they genuinely see it as a better form of production, and they genuinely want to participate in the expansion of the U.S. organic industry. And I think the individuals who take that tack, uh, they're probably going to continue to convert regardless. The other individuals that you have are looking at it from purely a long-term profitability and risk perspective. And from that perspective, you know, even with the risks that we've outlined for the organic sector and the potentially bearish outlook that we've talked about, the conventional sector continues to look worse. Definitely all the headwinds that we've just outlined for the organic industry exist for the conventional plus a whole basket of other issues that the organic industry does not face. So really, those who are motivated by the economic side of it, that rationale and that motivation continues. And I think so long as that continues, you'll see people move over. Whether or not that pace will be slowed down or escalated within the context of the coronavirus this year, that really just depends on the individual and whether or not they feel or see their operations being impacted by the uh, disease, you know, in terms of if the operator gets sick or if somebody that they rely on falls ill. But outside of that, yeah, I mean, we, we continue to see the economics suggest that converting land to organic is the economically more sustainable model to follow right now within agriculture. How does this affect dairy in particular? Dairy in particular, organic dairy, we're already starting off with a situation in which the industry is struggling a little bit. And a lot of that struggle isn't necessarily due to anything going on within the organic industry per se. It's a struggle that's really reflective of what you see in the conventional market as well. And that is fluid milk consumption continues to decline. And for organic consumers or organic dairy producers, rather, this is probably a more acute issue because the same consumer that may go out and buy organic dairy or organic milk, they're probably also looking at buying oat milk or soy milk or almond milk, these other non-animal-based commodities. And then you also, if you consider the fact that the organic dairy industry is much more dependent on fluid milk sales than the conventional, that's really the story there is we're having some shifts in consumer preferences that are slowing down growth and demand for dairy. And so it's already on some hard times. Stepping past that, though, and thinking about what this may do. Or what may happen to organic dairy with coronavirus you know i think the big issues there are around supply chain and logistics if we start to see people fall ill and we start to see a loss or a, a reduction in people working within the long haul trucking industry or people who are unable to go in and work uh, milk processing plants things of that nature we start to see labor shortages there that could really start to back up because Milk has a relatively tight shelf life, right? From the time that it leaves the farm to the time it shows up in a carton on the grocery store shelf in a pretty narrow window. And so if we start to see significant delays in that chain, that, that could really back up on the organic
0: dairy industry in a real way. Do you have anything else you'd like to add for farmers on what they can expect to change?
3: Yeah, I think for farmers thinking about what you can change. And it's a little more challenging for the organic sector, too, because... We're less flexible than the conventional because we are dependent on crop rotations. I think as an organic farmer, all the same principles still apply. You know, even with all the risks and, and all the potential downsides for prices that we see out there in the market, uh, the fundamentals of running a, a, a farm and managing your operation and managing your cash flow remain the same. Make sure that you're looking at your rotation and your long-term profitability within that rotation, and make sure that you're making sound strategies with respect to either forward marketing or trying to hold on to spot markets in your grains. And don't get too wrapped up in what might happen going forward and all the potentials of the ifs. Uh, Pay attention to your farm now and what you know about your operation now and, and make sound decisions for now. There's still so much uncertainty with this coronavirus issue that trying to make decisions about things that we don't know will or may or might not happen. Could, could lead to a lot of uh, disappointment down the road and, and, and a lot of, you know, regret down the road. So most farmers, they, they know their operation. They know who they're working with and, and they know the best course to take for their operations. And I think that's, you know, that's the most important thing now. Don't, don't get too wrapped up in the risks of the moment. Uh, continue to
0: make the sound decisions that you already know how to make. Thanks again to Ryan. And now for a short break before hearing from Carmen Fernholtz on organic grain markets. Our work is supported in part by Gemplers. Shop Gemplers hand-picked collection of problem solvers that make your work easier. Find the best products to help you protect and sustain a healthy organic farm at Gemplers. Save 20% on your order from Gemplers. Use promo code GEMORG03. Offer expires April 15th, 2020. Shop at (music) Gemplers.com. Lastly, back to Carmen for his thoughts on how organic grain farmers should approach this season. So from a buyer's perspective, there's enough grain inventory out there that it's going to keep prices low for the foreseeable future. What do you think are the main takeaways for growers?
1: You know, listening to the conversations that I am privy to uh, twice a month with our uh, old farm uh, marketers, we know that there is a, a significant amount of 2018 and, and some 2019 Crops, especially corn uh, organic crops that is on the farms and buyers are certainly aware of this and so when we look at going into the 2020 cropping year this obviously is going to be hanging over our heads and as farmers it's it's certainly going to be a depressant on the markets so I think as farmers we need to be aware of this and my concern is that we don't start becoming marketers like a lot of our good friends and neighbors who farm conventionally, where we, we suddenly are again in a, a volatile market and all of a sudden we find ourselves simplifying our rotations and depending more on the corn and soybeans rather than on a more robust rotation. But even from a marketing perspective, I think one of the most important things is that we move the inventory that we do have into the market. Because if we leave it, we're only compounding the potential problem for the 2020 crop. And as I, as I've mentioned to other farmers, the only way you really move a crop price is to move the crop itself into the market. Because logic tells you that if you move crop into the market at a certain price, the buyer has to raise the price to the next level purchaser in order to generate a profit for themselves. And so that's basically the rationale that we're using here. Move the product into the market to move the market. Secondly, move the product so that you take it away from the existing inventory and you can focus more on the new crop that way. You know, as we get into the more visible impacts of the coronavirus, and we've already experienced some of the impacts of imported grain, I think one of the most important things that an organic farmer can do is rely on somebody other than themselves to do the market search to look for the, the markets that are out there because uh, a marketer can spend 24-7 talking to the end users, to the buyers, and as a consequence, get a good feel for what, for what's going on out there. Myself, as an individual, uh, spending the time talking one-on-one with buyers may not be the most robust price discovery system. I might be able to achieve it if I make enough calls, but I'm never quite certain that I'm getting the best answer because there's always vested interest from the buyer if I'm talking to the buyer. Because as I've told people over the years, our buyer, the job description for them is to get the raw material for the least amount of dollars. And on the other hand, if I search out and hire a marketer. That marketer's best interest is going to serve me because I'm writing his paycheck. And so if if he or she is unable to do what I would consider an adequate job, they probably won't get paid. So I guess what I'm really talking about here is when we look at the international markets and when we look at the changing atmosphere and the changing topography, figuratively speaking, of organic grain farming. And we see a move more towards, especially here in the Midwest, corn and soybeans. And some people short-circuit a more robust crop rotation. We see farmers moving into that conventional mindset, and all it can do is serve to put downward pressure on the markets and i'm not blaming the uh, end users uh, for doing what they're doing they're only being good managers of their uh, of their companies and so it becomes important for the producers to work at leveling that playing field and so instead of being that single voice talking to the market I think it becomes even more critical with the changing environment of organic crop production that farmers begin to grow their voice by marketing together and, and, and going to these buyers and saying, Yes, we will work with you, but we want to be on a more level playing field and we're going to make a level playing field by providing you with a more reliable, robust inventory. So, you know, it's it's a long way of probably answering what you're trying to ask here, Chuck, but it's something that it's out there. And I think as farmers, we have to see more clearly how it is changing. Yeah, even five years ago, it was a lot easier to go out and market an organic crop and know that you were going to get a pretty decent price for it. Today, that is changing quickly. And today, for sure, I need a marketer to help me market more than ever before. What I've said uh, at the risk of repeating myself is that, again, the, the Macaruses of the world, the grain millers, the general mills, all these people are doing what they need to do to keep themselves in business. And so if, if that's what they're doing, I think what the organic farmers need to do is in order to keep themselves in business, become a much louder voice in the market. And as I said earlier, level the playing field. And I think from a futuristic perspective, we know what happens or what happened in conventional agriculture with the consolidation of farming, the consolidation of farms, the loss of farmers, and the inability of new and younger farmers to get into farming because of the the ever-ratcheting-up competitiveness. If we don't level the marketing playing field, that will be what will be happening in organics as well. Now, certainly it'd be nice for me to to say to the large end users and buyers to uh, consider the future of organics and how they can keep more farmers into farming rather than fewer. Obviously, it would take uh, conscientious change of heart or a conscientious decision by them to try to work with more farmers on an equal basis rather than attempting to only focus on the large producing operations and forgetting the smaller operations.
0: And so leveling the playing field, would that be kind of a combination of forming or strengthening cooperatives and policy?
1: in a one liner yes a cooperative marketing has to be the future of organics if we're going to prevent happening to organics what has happened to uh, conventional agriculture there's no there's no doubt in my mind that that's what's going to have to happen if we're gonna save
0: it. My one hope for our national and global response to this pandemic is that especially in the United States where our individualism is such a big part of how we are defined culturally my hope is that we'll see the limits of the kinds of problems that individualism can solve because individualism can't solve a pandemic and individualism can't solve climate change so my one hope is that as a culture we could grow towards a more it's it's tricky because people always think you're talking about like destroying the individual, but just adding in a really robust understanding of how what we do affects each other and how we can work together to create the kind of world that we want.
1: You're, you're so right. It's my hope as well. And I, I'm i reading a book right now by uh, John Eichert called Crisis and Opportunity. And he talks about independence and interdependence. And certainly each of us as organic farmers and any farmer for that matter, we have a certain amount of independence that we uh, practice on our farms because of our own creative skills and opportunities. But I think more importantly, we have to really understand that independence can be enhanced through interdependence because it creates the opportunity for us to be more creative and inventive, but at the same time, interdependence provides the safety net that we're all always going to need. And my hope, very similar to yours, is is that this uh, coronavirus epidemic all opens up our eyes to the realization that, yes, we are all in this together, and we're all going to have to work together to survive it. Because individually... It's impossible to do. If it takes something like this epidemic to really uh, make us more aware of that interdependence, I don't like it, but I'm hoping, like you are, that it will reveal to us our need for the interdependence of this country and of the world.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Carmen. Thanks again to Carmen Fernholtz, Luke Peterson, and Ryan Corey. And thank you for listening to the Moses Organic Farming Podcast. Moses provides training, resources, and practical advice to help farmers succeed in organic and sustainable farming. The annual Moses Organic Farming Conference is the country's largest educational event on organic agriculture. Free resources include the bi-monthly Organic Broadcaster newspaper, and the guidebook for organic certification. Organic specialists answer farming and certification questions through the Organic Answer Line. You can reach the Organic Answer Line at 888-90-MOSES or mosesorganic.org ask. Carmen Fernholtz, who you heard from today, is one of our organic specialists. You can let me know if there's a topic you'd like covered in a future episode at chuck at mosesorganic.org. Our theme song is Summerfields by the Tenements. As we all deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are gathering resources for farmers at mosesorganic.org slash COVID. We are also constantly updating our community calendar with webinars and other educational events. We'll add new resources as they become available, so check back often.